Thanks, brother. Y'all take a seat. Good morning. My name is Paul Ramsey. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, um, there's a couple people. Uh, it's, I'm glad to be here. I'm a church planting resident here at Sojourn Galleria, which means I'm a, I'm a, a pastor in training, uh, getting ready, preparing to plant a church, Lord willing, here over the next year or so in the Brazewood Place neighborhood of Southwest Interloop, Houston, so directly southeast of where we are right now is the neighborhood we're going to be in. Um, Taylor Ince is the pastor here at Sojourn Galleria, and he is on vacation with his family. Um, and I've had the, preach, uh, the privilege of preaching last week and then this week uh, as well. And so it's been good for me to sit in these texts and to, to practice preaching, um, uh, as it were, uh, as I'm in this season of preparation. And last week, I want to say this. If you were here last week um, uh, and you heard what I said at the beginning last week, I took a moment to give you a little update on where I uh, am in the planting process and invite you to consider what God might be inviting you to in terms of the next step that God has laid out before you. Uh, because while some of you very well might come with us and join our uh, neighborhood parish that we're looking at starting in a couple of months, um, which will Lord willing be kind of the kernel of the, the core team for our church plant. Uh, I know that for most of you, that's not gonna be the case. Most of you, God has you here at Sojourn Gallery and has called you here for the purpose of being here for the long haul. Um, and so for all of us, though, I asked you to consider what is the Lord inviting you into in this season? Could be something as seemingly small as being more intentional with your across-the-street neighbor. Could be something as big as God lighting a fire in your heart to possibly even plant a church one day. Um, what is the Lord inviting you to do? So I asked that last week, and so what I want to ask right now is how'd that go this week? Um, did God bring anything up? in your mind, in your heart, and have you told anyone about it? Uh, we need each other. I was talking to a friend of mine um, this past week about, and it was, we were talking about a romantic, he's a, a girl he's interested in. Um, and we were having this conversation. He said, you know, Paul, I'm just convinced I just really need to call her. I just need to reach out to her. And it was a great conversation. He was encouraged. And at the end of the conversation, I said, okay, if I don't hear from you by 9 p.m. tonight, I'm gonna text you and ask you how the phone call went. And he said, dang it. <laughs> He said, well, how did he say it? He said, yeah, he said, accountability sucks. Because once you tell someone what you believe that the Lord is calling you to, you kind of hold yourself accountable to that. Now, I don't say that to scare you away from telling people what you think the Lord might be calling you to. I'm telling you that to encourage you to do so because we need each other. God moves in us and he moves in us in community. If you think that God might be inviting you to something, one of the best ways to discern whether that's from the Lord or not, because it's not that easy to do sometimes, is to tell the people around you, people who love you. Um, and so just want to ask you to, to do that. If, if God's brought something up in your heart, have you told anyone? If not, you should do that this week. Someone in your parish, Christian brother or sister, um, if you're not yet a part of a parish, please right now uh, fill out a connect card, drop it in the black box at the end. Uh, would love to be in touch with you, get you connected with the neighborhood parish. Um, and the last thing I'll say before I jump into the sermon uh, is thank you very much for being here. I'm very cognizant of the fact that France is currently beating Croatia. Um, I actually don't know the score. Don't tell me the score, please. Yes, I know. And I will say that I'm going to put my wholehearted support behind France this morning. Parce que nous avons une femme française ici. We have a, a French member uh, at Sojourn Gallery. So anyway, looking forward to France winning. Do me a favor. Uh, uh, I... You do not have permission to watch the World Cup right now uh, on your phone. 
Um, but please, for those of you who are getting whatever the buzz is on your phones about the score, please do not ruin it. Um, okay, great. <laughs> Dang it. That's funny, Joe. Um, anyway, with that, we uh, thank you for being here. But in all seriousness, um, it's an honor to be together. Um, and it's an honor to come around remembering that the World Cup's a huge deal, but God's word is eternal. Um, God's word will and can, can and will pierce your heart, pierce our hearts with the very will of God in a way that the World Cup cannot. And so thank you for being here. Let's, let's jump right in. Look with me. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 23. And I want you to look with me at verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. That's verses 23 and 24, and I'll stop there. In essence, this whole passage is going to come out of these two verses. Um, and this whole sermon, essentially, I'm going to hope to capture uh, what those two verses mean. And there's some heavy hitters in this passage. Um, I don't know about you, but as I was listening to Justin read the passage, I, you know, that verse, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. I heard that and I thought, man, my sermon is wildly uh, incomparable to the glory of that passage. So anyway, I, I, uh, it's, it's a daunting task to preach on a text like this. But, uh, but here we go. In these first two verses, Paul gives a general principle. Right? He says, all of your life should be oriented towards seeking the good of your neighbor. And look at how Paul does it. Your Bible probably has quotation marks around the phrase, all things are lawful, which appears twice in this verse. Uh, these words are a slogan that was current in Corinth that the Corinthians were likely, uh, likely used. They likely referred to that phrase um, when they wrote their letter to the Apostle Paul, which the letter of 1 Corinthians is a response to a letter that they had sent him. Uh, and so these, these words could be translated, I have liberty to do all things. I'm free to do all things. Right, this clearly links what Paul is saying here with what he's been spending the last few chapters talking about. This is the conclusion, in a sense, to, the, to what Paul's been saying since the beginning of chapter 8. The Corinthians are concerned about their freedom, right, and they're not too pleased with the Apostle Paul for telling them that there are things like meat offered to idols and participating in idolatrous feasts that they should avoid. So they're not all too thrilled that Paul's been telling them there's things to avoid. But Paul is imploring with them to see that the freedom that they have is something that should be exercised with great care, both for the sake of their own, own souls, as we saw Paul warn them last week, uh, especially in verses 6 through 13 right, of chapter 10, that they must exercise great care lest their exercise of freedom lure them into idolatry, leading them to become slaves to the things that they think that they're just using their freedoms for. And so he says it for the sake of their own souls, but he also says exercise great care with your freedom for the sake of others lest your exercise of freedom lead others to stumble, stumble or suffer, as we saw Paul addressing back in chapters 8 and 9 very thoroughly. And as we see here, that's what Paul's focus turns to once again, the sake of others. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. The first thing we notice here is that Paul doesn't disagree with that statement. He doesn't say, actually, not all things are lawful. The Corinthians insist that they're free in all things, and Paul doesn't have an issue with that. What he has an issue with, evidently, is that they're thinking primarily about themselves and whether or not they'll get in trouble for what they're doing rather than thinking of others and how their actions might affect others. Right? And so now we might read this individualistically too. 
right? That we can do all things, but not all things are helpful for us, right? We can do all things, but not all things build us up. And while that's certainly true, there are personal, you know, individual applications for this. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Verse 24 makes it clear. Paul's focus is on the fact that they should not be seeking their own good, but the good of their neighbor. Right? Paul is concerned with the other. Not all things are helpful, Paul says, to others. Not all things build others up. And furthermore, more specifically, it seems that Paul's focused on others within the church. Building up is the word that Paul uses. Right? And it's almost exclusively in the New Testament used to describe an activity that Christians do with one another. Building up one another. Building up the body of Christ. The building, the temple for the Holy Spirit that is the church. And so, so Paul's talking about Christians. Think about other Christians. And this general principle that Paul introduces here is this. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Our primary concern should not be to insist on our rights for our own good but to insist on the rights of others and the good of others, even when it means laying down our freedoms. And then to illustrate this general principle, Paul moves on, verses 25 through 30, applying this general principle to a specific situation. Again, it's almost, uh, we're, we're almost beating a dead horse here, but again, he comes back to the question of meat offered to idols to apply this general principle. He, he basically reiterates, saying, you're absolutely free to enjoy what God has provided for you. yes. But there are times that you should refrain from those good things for the sake of others. And if you think about it, the Corinthians are probably considering, by this point in Paul's argument, they're probably considering what this looks like in real life. Right? You can imagine the question that they're probably asking. Well, if we're supposed to lay down our rights for others, then where do you draw the line? Right? If we're supposed to try to become all things to all people for their sake, are we not allowed to enjoy anything for ourselves? Where do you draw the line? Do you just totally concede, give up everything, no matter what? What Paul does here is he puts up bumpers on the left and on the right to help them navigate what this actually looks like in their life. On the one hand, he says, essentially, don't be picky. Look at verses 25 to 27. Paul says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Right, it goes on, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, then eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So Paul points them to public and private settings, the meat market, the unbeliever's home, um, and he's doing something intentional here. To give a little bit of context, the example that Paul gives of questioning meat in the marketplace isn't just a random example. Right, there was a group of people who are known for being picky with their meat in the marketplace, the Pharisees. Um, who were a group known for being hard as nails in their devotion to the Jewish law, right? And what were they doing? They would go through the meat market and ask around, making a show of saying, how was this meat killed? And then vehemently avoiding any idol sacrificed meat. It was a showy practice. And Paul knows that he's, as he's talking to the Corinthians, they'd be well aware of this practice and would want to avoid looking like the Pharisees at all costs. Paul already knows the Corinthians are like, we don't wanna be like Pharisees. So Paul says, look at them. That's not what I'm talking about. Don't be picky. Don't raise any question, he says. Just eat it. And this would have been staggering for the Corinthians to hear from Paul. Right? Paul used to be a Pharisee. He, they probably thought uh, that this Pharisee become Christian up to this point was just telling them to become like Pharisees, to avoid eating meat offered to idols. And they probably thought, okay, he's just being a Pharisee again. 
But Paul says just the opposite. Even though he had just talked about demons and how participation in these idolatrous feasts, which included this sacrificed meat, is tantamount to sharing a table with demons. Paul had just said that. Um, He then looks at them and says, as long as you're not participating in their worship ceremonies, eat whatever you like. Even though there's real power in these demon rituals, don't think for a moment that these demons own that meat. Verse 26, he quotes Psalm 24.1, which I read at the beginning. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Listen, even though the demons might think so, the people who worship these demons, these, these false gods, might think that they now own this meat because it's been sacrificed to them, they don't own this meat, is what Paul's saying. God does. God owns everything. And since it belongs to God, it belongs to you too because God is pleased to share with you all things. This is huge, especially for Paul, this former Pharisee. He had become persuaded in the truth of the gospel that nothing is unclean in itself. Paul has truly, in other words, laid down his former life and is here displaying for us what it looks like to become truly all things to all people. Similarly, he gives the example of going into the home of an unbeliever. Right? Again, he says, don't worry about it. Don't be picky. For those who might think that it's one thing to purchase meat in the market and then prepare it and eat it yourself in your own home, that's one thing. But it's another thing altogether to go into the house of an unbeliever and eat that meat that's provided for you there. For the one who would kind of distinguish between the two and say, those are totally different things. Paul would say, actually, not really. The same same is true there as well. Verse 27, Paul says, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But Paul, right, isn't going into their home affirming them in their way of life in a way that we shouldn't? Haven't we crossed a boundary that we shouldn't cross? Right? Of course, Paul would say that if they, if they invite you to an in-home worship service to their gods, he would say, don't do that. Don't accept that invitation. But if they, they just invite you into their home for dinner, don't be ridiculous, he's saying. You're not running the risk of damaging your gospel witness. You're not running the risk, the risk of defiling yourselves by eating this so-called unclean meat. If you enter into the home of an unbeliever, Eat a meal with them. Draw near to them. Right? Enjoy the meal without asking any questions about the meat they're serving you to make them further feel far away from you and your God. Paul's heart in this matter is clear along those lines. He says, you're in the world to show others the love of God. So do, therefore, what is the best thing that would help you show God's love to them. Draw near to them. Don't push them away. Jesus modeled it didn't he? Jesus was found in people's homes, sinners' homes, like real sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes were the ones he spent time with. But Paul here is saying, do what Jesus did. The Pharisees hated it, but draw near to people without the fear of being defiled or of ruining your witness. You are allowed to associate with unbelievers, is what Paul is saying. You're allowed to look at them and say, I love you. I'm for you and I'm with you. I would love to share a meal at your home and eat without making you feel bad about how you got the meat. Don't engage in their worship ceremonies, but absolutely accept an invitation into their home. Let me pause for a moment here. If you're a Christian in the room, this, I think, is huge for us. Let me let you in on something. Christians especially evangelical Christians, and it would be helpful to clarify here that Sojourn is an evangelical church. 
right? Evangelical Christians are known as people who say no, right? We're known by the world around us as people who say no. Think about it politically, which is how most of our fellow citizens who aren't evangelical Christians think about us. No to abortion, no to Planned Parenthood, no to leniency for illegal immigrants, no to gun safety laws, no to trigger warnings, no to people struggling with gender dysphoria who wish to be referred to by a different pronoun, no to gay marriage or gay rights, no to even baking cakes for gay couples, no to higher taxes, no to public schools for our children, no to evolution, no to Obamacare. We're known for saying no to a lot of things. Whether or not we like it, that's how we're known. We're more in danger, in other words, of being compared to the Pharisees than being compared to Jesus. And listen, there are some things that we should say no to, right? You might say some of those things are a really big deal, and I agree with you. But the point I'm making is this, where are we drawing the line? And are we drawing the line too far out of self-preservation and self-interest? And basically, what is it that we're giving up at the expense of showing up? What is something that we're giving up just to make a show of giving it up? And let me give just one particularly important example in our current cultural moment, the LGBT plus issue. It's an issue fraught with complexity, as you and I both know. But too often, probably because it's an issue that creates a good deal of discomfort in us, we reach for the simple solution. And we know what that is. No, (laughs) it's a sin. So let's just say no to everything involved with it. But would Paul's words here and elsewhere in the Bible about becoming all things to all people, even gay people, call us to ask some more questions? To speak personally, I officiate weddings. And I know that if I was asked to officiate a gay wedding, I would have to say no based on my biblical conviction and my role as a pastor. That would be crossing a line. But what about other things? What if a transgender person asked me to call them by their preferred pronoun. Should I say no to that? What about making a point of inviting my gay neighbors over for dinner or saying yes when they invite me over to their home for dinner? Should I say no? What about attending a gay wedding? I know I wouldn't officiate one, but is that then... It's kind of a foregone conclusion that I should absolutely say no to ever attending a gay wedding? Are you sinning if you're present? I, I don't know the answer to that question, but it's something that was brought up to me a week ago. Just happened to be preaching on his text. And I don't know. Is it truly fair to say that attendance at a gay wedding is the same as participation in the idolatrous feasts of the pagans in Corinthian culture? Have I even considered something different? Not until a week ago. You see, remember, Paul's talking about living our lives for the sake of others so that they might see the love and hospitality of God through our love and hospitality towards them. And yes is a lot more welcoming and loving than no. Sure, sometimes no is the loving thing to say. But as a parent, I remember someone telling me once that I've got to be really thoughtful about the times that I say no so that when I do say no, it actually means something. If my default as a parent is to say no all the time, then not only does that communicate something to my child that I don't want to communicate as their father, but the no's also become a lot less effective. They already know what I'm gonna say, so my daughters are just gonna decide to do whatever they want. 
If my default, however, is to say yes as much as possible, of course, say yes and then direct in a good way, but if, I, if my default is to say yes as much as possible, then the no's have the potential to hold a lot more weight. Right? I was a teacher, a high school teacher in a low-income classroom for three years. I yelled three times at my classroom. Twice the first year, none the second year, once the third year. I remember them vividly. <laughs> I hated it. But, I mean, I knew, I knew teachers who yelled at their students all the time with very little effect. But I tell you, those three times that I yelled, you could hear a pin drop. It was, for the most part, quite effective because I never yelled at them. I said, these were students who always heard no from their teachers, and I went in trying to say yes, yes, yes. And so when I raised my voice to them, they were like, oh, my gosh, Coach Ramsey is going nuts right now. But it, it caused them to pause. Going back to the LGBT plus issue, what if our approach to people in that particular group, what if our approach was guided by the question, what can I say yes to rather than just an automatic no? Given the history of evangelical engagement with the gay community, which I don't have time to go into right now, but suffice it to say we've blown it over the past 50 years, what do you think would be the best way to communicate the love of God? Yes, we want to come, draw near to you, and engage with you as much as we can, or should we just keep saying no the way that we've been saying it? To zoom out, what about other issues that are big for us? What if, what if the, the seeking to say yes as much as possible was in, kind of embedded in our approach with our political opponents, with people who see differently than us on you know, current racial tensions, immigration, taxes? What if this was our approach to the homeless poor, to the immigrant, to the refugee, to our coworkers who live crazy lifestyles? What if we became known as people who said yes more often than not? We're known for people, for being people who don't do that. We're known as people who say no. So we should let Paul's words check us a little bit. He calls us to put our rights to the side, even our right to be right, for the sake of our witness to Christ. And listen, this is not just our witness to Christ in our own minds, how we feel about how we're presenting Christ. As remarkably obvious as this point may be to say aloud, I think it must be said, witness always has the other in mind, right? Maintaining your witness to Christ is not to make you feel good about what you're doing. It's for the sake of others, to witness to others what you have seen and experienced in living a life with God and knowing his love. To witness to others means that you put God on display in all of his beauty and grace and love. Truth. Absolutely, but I think we do pretty well with that already. Grace and love and beauty are included there. That means that you should think about how your activity with, right, your words towards, your engagement with others affects them. It might make you feel a bit uncomfortable initially, as Paul undoubtedly would have been when he was first told that he's allowed to eat meat that's offered to idols. But that's, that's why Paul says in this passage, he knows that this is, this is uncomfortable for us. And so he says, don't worry, all is lawful. He agrees with that. He says, don't be picky. You don't even have to ask, just eat. Don't be those people who say no to everything, who have to make absolutely sure at all times that the rules are being followed to, followed to a T. Yes, they might be idolaters who are living in rebellion against God and how they're living their lives and engaging in animal sacrifice. But when they invite you over, don't stress. When they give you meat, don't ask. Eat it. This is huge stuff, and I would love to spend more time on it, but let's move on. Paul is setting up these bumpers for the Corinthians. On the one side, he says, don't be picky. 
right? We just spent a lot of time on that. On the other side, though, um, let's, let's look at this briefly. Um, I know I already mentioned it in passing a couple times, but Paul goes on to give a specific time when it's important to say no. Look with me at verses 28 through 30. Paul says, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, it's big, do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Briefly, what is Paul talking about here? A couple of observations. First, Paul is clear in verses 29 and 30 that your conscience is not a risk factor here. Right? Paul's conscience is not seared by eating meat offered to idols, even if he knows that it has probably been offered to idols. He knows that the idols are nothing. And, and so whether he eats or doesn't eat is neither here nor there for him. He, he addresses that conclusively in chapter eight. Your level of discomfort, in other words, is not what Paul is interested in here. So long as you're not sinning yourself, don't worry that you're searing your conscience. Paul's not worried about his in this issue. Nevertheless, there are some whose consciences might be affected by your eating of this meat that has been sacrificed. Here's me the second thing about these verses. Who is the someone who's letting you in on the fact that the meat has been offered in sacrifice? All right, it's a bit vague. The word literally translates the other man. Right. So who is this other person who brings it to your attention? In the context of this whole letter, I think that it's fair to conclude that this is talking about a weaker Christian who's present with you, who points out the idolatrous source of the meat. Here's why. Elsewhere, when Paul talks about concern for the conscience of another, he's never talking about the unbeliever. He's always talking about the brother and the weaker brother and the sake of their conscience. He mentions it with respect to the distinction between strong and weak brothers, that is, fellow Christians. Not that he's unconcerned about the unbeliever. Right? We know that Paul is very concerned about unbelievers. But we kind of get the sense that he's not worried about the seared conscience of the unbeliever because it's already seared kind of with everything that they do. <laughs> so here, it's with Paul's fellow Christians doing things that build up rather than tear down the church. Again, building up, that's words that, that are used really about the church. This is what Paul is concerned with. As one commentator put it, the strong Christian, this is an example of the strong Christian simply choosing not to create an embarrassing moral dilemma for a fellow member of the church who might feel pressured to eat the meat if his fellow Christian does. Right? And so if you have a, if you have a member who's a, a, fellow, a brother who's, who doesn't agree with you on whether you should or shouldn't eat meat, and he says, hey, this is offered to idols, refrain from it for the sake of that weaker brother. With the issues that I just talked about, if you think, yeah, we should be free to engage in this way, but, you, but a weaker brother or sister doesn't believe that that's true, don't, don't force them to do that. Don't put them in a public position where you're forcing them, pressuring them to act a certain way that's not in line with their conscience. He says, don't worry about your conscience, but there are people yet who are worried about their conscience, and it's for those people, Paul says, refrain. So to clarify, Paul is clearly distinguishing that his conscience is not at risk here. Right, he's, he's driving further at the idea of our freedom to enjoy all good things as from God and to give God glory even alongside those who are enjoying the same thing and thinking totally differently about it. The second thing that Paul, Paul is clarifying here is in pointing us to another brother, he's getting at the fact, again, this whole passage, 
that your engagement with these things should not ultimately be about you and your freedom, but should be about the sake of your brothers, the sake of another. And the third thing, to kind of summarize, Paul is essentially saying as long as you're thoughtful about those around you, and especially not causing the weaker brother to stumble, then enjoy things with freedom and give thanks to God for his good gifts. With respect to believers, with respect to those outside the church, um, yeah, so, so Paul's talking with respect to believers. With respect to those outside the church, Paul says, don't be so concerned about what you may or may not be affirming as you engage with them. The question of affirmation doesn't engage, like Paul doesn't even engage that question uh, in this passage. He says, go into their homes and eat the meat that they serve you. Love them well. Earn the right to be heard, in other words. Earn the right to be a place of trust and love where they know that they're not gonna find the judgment that comes, that so often comes from Christians that came from the Pharisees. Earn the place, the right to be a trustworthy friend. Don't be concerned about getting yourself dirty. You've been made clean. <laughs> All of the earth is the Lord's, the goodness thereof. Rather than being afraid of contamination, engage with the world around you with freedom, with boldness, with confidence, right? Sharing the amazing grace of God with all those who you come in contact, contact with, especially unbelievers. What does Paul say in verses 32 through 33? Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they might be saved. There's a lot here. What's Paul saying here? You have been placed in others' lives for the sake of their salvation, so don't offend them and ruin your opportunity to tell them about the salvation that's for them. Right? How offensive would it be to say no unnecessarily to a person? Paul's saying, don't give offense unnecessarily. You've been placed in their lives for the sake of their salvation. So try to please everyone in everything you do. Saying yes as much as possible, not for your own advantage, but for the sake of their salvation. You see, Paul's saying that all of your life, even and especially here, your exercise of your freedoms, should be oriented for the sake of others. And then in verse 31, look at what's right in the middle there. What does Paul say? He says, so... Whether you eat or drink, that's what he's been talking about. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, he says, okay, that's talking about these, this meat, but then also this extends in, by principle to everything that you do. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And do you see what Paul's doing here? He's talking about loving others. And then without skipping a beat, he says, do all for the glory of God. Do these two ideas sound familiar to you? Remember the first two commandments? First commandment, the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second, love your neighbor as yourself. You see what Paul's doing? Paul's taking those two commandments, glorifying God, laying down your life for your neighbor, right? Loving God, loving neighbor, and he's tying them together. Right? When you're loving your neighbor as yourself, in other words, Paul says that is how you glorify God. Remember that scene let me go to a, a comparable idea. Remember the scene toward the end of Jesus's ministry where he talks about this scene before the judgment seat where the sheep and the goats are divided from one another. It's a fearful scene in many ways. Remember what Jesus says uh, about those who knew him, right? As opposed to those who see, he says, depart from me for I never knew you. Remember what he says about those who did know him? Jesus said this, he said, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? For I was hungry, this is Jesus speaking, 
He says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? Right? When did we feed you? When did we give you drink? When did we see you a stranger? When did we give you clothes? When did we see you sick and visit you in prison? And then Jesus says, the king will answer to them, truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my, these, my brothers, you did it to me. Right? What is Jesus saying there? You see that connection? He says, in loving others, you are loving Christ. In, lo- in laying your life down for your neighbor, you are laying your life down for God. So what Paul is doing here in this passage in 1 Corinthians 10 is the very same thing that Jesus was doing. He's tying together the first two commands, the great the two great commandments and saying they go hand in hand. And so great, you might say, right? Should be simple then. We should love others and so glorify God. See, we're in a culture that believes that right thinking is paramount, right? If you just think the right things, then the rest will just fall into place. Right? You think of yourself as a leader, then you're gonna become a great leader. You think of yourself as you know, a superstar, then you're gonna become a superstar. You think of yourself as someone who loves others, then you're just going to become someone who loves others. The problem is that even though we know those words sound good, when it comes to the practice of our everyday lives, they are impossible to uphold. We are to lay our lives down for our neighbors, for others around us. But as human beings, we're hardwired for really two things. One, it's interesting to note that we're actually hardwired as humans to think that this is a good idea. Right, that it would be good for us to live lives for the sake of others. We're hardwired to think that that's a good idea. Here's what I mean. The Bible teaches us that all of us were made by God in God's image, right? And that even though humanity has fallen in our sin, we still display the image of, and glory of God in how we were created. And one of these things in all of, all of humanity, not just Christians, in every human being is the ability to see and recognize beauty for what it is. When we see something beautiful, we know that it's beautiful. And so when we see someone's laying their life down self-sacrificially for another, we say, yes, I want to do that. Right? You don't need to be a Christian to know that. Christians don't have a monopoly on good ethics. Right? We're not the only ones made in the image of God. So one, we're hardwired to think that it would be good for us. But the problem is the second thing that we're hardwired to do, even though we know this is good, when it actually comes to living our lives, we find out that due to the effects of sin, being born enslaved to sin, we are hardwired to live not for the sake of others, but the sake of ourselves. Our inescapable natural drive, in other words, is one of self-preservation rather than one of self-sacrifice. One thing, that I, one thing right, that I think that the theory of evolution gets right is the observation that the natural tendency of all the creatures of the earth, including human beings, is one of self-preservation. We're hardwired for self-preservation, for self-interest. And this has been the case ever since the fall. We've been consumed by it. Remember the first thing that happened after Adam and Eve committed that sin in the Garden of Eden. When they ate the fruit of that tree, the first thing that happened was what? We're naked. They looked immediately at themselves. And as human beings, we have been doing the same thing ever since. We have been a navel-gazing race, consumed with our own thoughts, interests, desires, preservation. And historically speaking, so that's not bad enough, historically speaking, our cultural inheritance here in Houston doesn't make this any easier for us. Here's what I mean. 
couple centuries ago, the 18th century, this big thing happened in the Western world called the Enlightenment. You may have heard of it. Um, it's, it basically took hold of the Western world, and coming out of the Enlightenment, there was this idea, right, really, a, 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 a f- the, the world was caught on fire by the idea of human beings as being autonomous, rational agents in the world. Human freedom, free beings, is, what, is basically what came out of the Enlightenment. Many great things came from that, if you think about it. Right? Liberal democracy, freedom, took off like wildfire. Uh, the Enlightenment took place in the 18th century, and then do you remember what else happened toward the end of the 18th century, around the year 1776, right? The United States <laughs> declared independence from Britain and established the great American experiment, this liberal democracy where freedom is supposed to reign, right? Values of human dignity, freedom, free expression, true liberty now had a foundation on which to stand in the Enlightenment, right? This Enlightenment idea of the human being as a rational, autonomous agent. But like we so often do with good things, we twist them through our insatiable pursuit of our own self-interests into evil things. And so if you fast forward a couple hundred years, we are in the age of rights today, right? Everyone is obsessed with rights. Free speech, freedom of religion, free to love who I want and marry who I want, free to be called whatever I want, you know, free to not, you know, anyway, I, we are in an age obsessed with rights. And <laughs> again, rights are a gr- very good thing. The, remember the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, I think 1948, after the two world wars, the, the nations, the great powers of the world came together and wrote this document to preserve the freedom and protect individuals from oppressive governments. And that came out of this idea of human autonomy, human freedom, out of the Enlightenment. But we've taken that now into demanding more and more rights. doesn't matter who my rights affect, but I just, I, you know, we're just obsessed with rights. So historically speaking, on top of our self-centered sinfulness, which is part of the human condition, this is the cultural air that we breathe. It's all about you, what you want, all about your rights, no matter how they affect others. And as a result, I think it's particularly difficult to understand what Paul's talking about here for us. We often read the Bible through the lens of our Western post-enlightenment worldview. And so when we come to a verse like verse 31, so whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, we think we immediately know what he's talking about. He's talking about me and me giving glory to God, right? I need, to, I need to give glory to God, boom, great. And how we usually take that is that we need to think rightly. Saved by our thoughts is what we think, right? If I think rightly about God, then I'm enjoying him forever, and boom, I'm giving him glory, right? But as Jesus said about the people who did not love their neighbors, Jesus said, Whatever you didn't do for the least of these, my brothers, you didn't do for me. Therefore, depart from me, for I never knew you. Right? We think that that verse really is talking to us. Everything that I do should be focused. It's me and God, me glorifying God. But Paul doesn't let us escape from that. Jesus doesn't let us escape from this, the reality that this is inherently tied to the second commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's not just about right thinking. It's about right loving. And listen, you and I will fail. We fail every time. Because truly loving God over ourselves, truly loving others over ourselves is a heart issue and we cannot change our hearts. And so how do we do it? Verse 11, chapter 11, verse one. Look at how Paul ends this. Paul says this, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. There's this scene in the gospels 
towards the end of Jesus' early ministry, uh, or earthly ministry, excuse me, where Jesus is talking about what's about to come, and he tells them that he's going to be killed. Peter comes up to Jesus and says, no, 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 Jesus, you're not supposed to die. Remember how Jesus replies to Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. And then Jesus goes on. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Sound familiar? You are looking at yourself and your interests. Even the apostle Peter, right there with Jesus, was looking at his own interests own interest, rather than the Christ, the God, God himself, who is standing right in front of him. And it's right after that that Jesus says these famous words. Like the next few verses, Jesus says this. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? The point that Jesus is making there is that you must die to yourself in order for Christ to come alive in you. Because truthfully, the old man, the old woman in you is incapable of thinking of others first. Let me put it this way. At most funerals that I've been to, um, a big emphasis is placed on the legacy uh, that is left behind uh, by the person who passed away. And legacy is a good thing. We want people to see Christ in us that they might glorify him. But sometimes... And I'd say, especially with Christians, the takeaway is a heavy level of concern about how am I living my life? What are people going to say about me at my funeral? And listen, here's the thing. If your motivation for doing things is your own legacy, then you're walking down a path that is different from the one that Paul's talking about here, to put it plainly. It's not self-sacrifice if you lay down your life in order to make your own name great. That's doing all things to the glory of me, not to the glory of God. And listen, the problem is not with legacy itself. It's a good thing to leave a good legacy and to want others to think highly of something as they look at the way that you live your life. But the problem is the motivation. Rather than questioning your life and thinking, what are people going to think of me? What if instead you looked at someone who has lived their life for the sake of God and let it amaze you just how highly they regarded him? Rather than asking... Will people say things about me that they were saying about him or her? Instead, ask, is God's glory as big of a deal for me as it was for him or her? It's clear that self-sacrifice was nothing for this person because of their relationship with God. And so am I cultivating my relationship with God like this person did? If not, why not? Those are probably better questions to ask when you see a funeral and you think highly of a person who has passed. If it's about you and your name, you're missing it. Your motivation is no different than anyone else in the world. You walk through a graveyard, you look at the tombstones of people who are Christian and non-Christian alike. They say the same things. Great lover of people. Very generous person. You know, always bright into the room. But we know that for one, the motivation is one thing. And for the other, the motivation is another. If it's about God and his name, and your enjoyment of him rather than enjoyment of the praise of others, then that is what it means to live for the glory of God. It requires, brothers and sisters, a full denial of the self. And the only way this is possible, Paul says, as he closes this passage, is follow me as I follow Christ. What is Paul saying? 
fix your eyes on Christ. You see, Paul's been talking a big game up until now, right? He says, I've been doing, look at all these things that I've been doing, right? It sounds kind of prideful if you, if you zoom out. What Paul's saying, he says, I have become all things to all people. I'm laying down my life for all these people. I am doing these things. I've done this. I've done that. It sounds like Paul's really puffing himself up big time. But then right at the end, lest we misunderstand what Paul is saying, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul does the absolute shift. He says, you might be looking at me and thinking that I'm so great. He says, probably not. The Corinthians were pretty frustrated with him at this point. You might be looking at me, but don't look at me. Look at Christ. Fix your eyes on Christ. There's this scene in the Old Testament where the Israelites, another story that I didn't have time to get to yesterday, but he talks about the snakes in the wilderness. There's this scene where the, God's people are rebellious. They're, they're, they're lost in their sin and rebellion against God. And so God sends snakes to bite them. And then what does God do? He provides, he says, Moses, build a, put a snake on the staff so that people look at the snake and live. Don't go out and get an antidote. Don't try to fix yourself up, patch up your wounds simply. Look, look, and your eternal destiny will be changed. Paul's saying here, look, fix your eyes on Christ because only Christ has the power to change you and he can do it through a glance. I'll end there. And I wanna ask you one question, keeping in mind how Paul ties together loving God and loving your neighbor. Here's the question that I wanna ask you as we close. How are you doing? You know, the, the, the American, the cardinal discipleship question here in American Christianity is this, how are you doing with the Lord, right? I ask that all the time to people. People ask me that all the time. How are you doing with the Lord? It's a great question, not knocking on it, but here's a, here's a good question that probably gets even more to the heart of what we're actually after in discipleship relationships. How are you doing with loving others? How are you doing with loving others? That's what I wanna ask you this morning. Chances are the answer to that question is a really good diagnostic for actually how you're doing at loving God. How are you loving others? Are you loving others more today than you did yesterday? Praise God. More than you did five years ago, 10 years ago? If you're not, stop looking at yourself. Look at Christ and live because God gets glory. God is loved by you as you love your fellow man. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for each other, for this time that you've given us together to, to study your word. Thank you for these truths and for giving me a chance to sit in them this week ponder how they could possibly apply to us. These words from 2,000 years ago, how could they apply to us here in 2018? And I pray, Lord, that as I went through these meandering few words that I prepared, I pray that you would help everyone in this room to, to trust you more. I pray that you would cut to our hearts through these, this passage. Convict us of just how impossible it is to lay our lives down of our own accord, of our own will. Everyone in the world knows it's good to lay your life down. <laughs> and everyone in the world knows that that's impossible to do. Sometimes we want to, we, we, we are willfully ignorant of that fact. And we think that we're actually doing well with it. But Lord, we know that we can't do it without you. Help us to fix our eyes on you. And as we move to communion, do just that, Lord. Fix our eyes on you, who gave us the ultimate example of laying your life down for us.
truly living your life for the sake of others. And help us, Lord. Help us to do the same with faith, with confidence, with trust, and with great joy. For this, when we lay down our lives, you say that is where we find true life. And your desire for us is not just life, but life abundantly. So give us that life. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.